Welcome to Main Street Banking, a podcast for community bankers brought to you by the Barrett School of Banking, located in the heart of banking, blues, and barbecue, Memphis, Tennessee. My name is Byron Earnhardt. I am the program director here at Barrett, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to our corner of the banking world and hope that we can make your bank, your staff, and maybe even your day a better one. Today's episode, we have Jimmy Sawyers from Sawyers and Jacobs here in Memphis. Jimmy is a longtime faculty member teaching our technology courses at the Barrett Graduate School of Banking, and more importantly, he's an enormous advocate for community banks, particularly in the areas of IT and automation. I think you'll hear that come through in today's discussion. All right, today we have Jimmy Sawyers with Sawyers Jacob here in Memphis. Jimmy, how you doing? Fantastic. Good to be here, Byron. Thanks, thanks. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about Sawyers Jacob. Certainly, certainly. Well, uh, Sawyers and Jacobs, we're a boutique consulting firm in Collierville, Tennessee. We're uh, going on our 10th year in business, and uh, my background is in community banking. I started working in a community bank when I was 19 years old up in Humboldt, Tennessee, Merchant State Bank, uh, great bank, great group of people, and worked there for nine years. Started out as the kid in the computer room doing the <laughs> nightly update on the System 36, and uh, fortunately worked my way up, and I uh, got to be over operations uh, before I left there. So nine years at that community bank, then joined uh, Reynolds, Bone & Griesbeck, great CPA firm here in Memphis. It's been around over 100 years now, and again, another great group of people, and worked in their consulting division for the next 14 years, last seven over that consulting division, helping community banks with tech planning and system selection, and went to a tech startup for about 19 months that really uh, told us that it was time we hung our own shingle. So joined up with uh, Joshua Jacobs. We, we've worked together now for 18 years, and we started Sawyers and Jacobs back in uh, late April 2009 and now work with over 120 active clients in 25 different states, and our focus is on community banks. Great, great. Um, at the end of 2017, and really every year, uh, I noticed you put out a top 10 predictions for the upcoming year for tech and banking. Um, and as we're coming up on the year end, and I really don't want to spoil your 2019 uh, pod, uh, uh, blog yet, but uh, I thought it'd be interesting to do a year in review uh, conversation with you, but through the lens of your 2018 predictions. And your first prediction that you had was, was quote, cybersecurity preparedness gets deeper and broader as bankers scrutinize their providers. And I wanted to ask you, with the increased attention placed on this issue by regulators, banking consultants, et cetera, have we seen banks make cybersecurity a top issue on management's radar in 2018? And how do we stand it as an industry now versus this time last year? Well, Byron, and wisely or unwisely i leave my top 10 predictions up on our website every year so you can go to sawyersjacobs.com and see my last 12 years of predictions and see just how right or wrong i've been so i'm not always right uh, unfortunately but in the area of cybersecurity and regarding this particular prediction uh, you know, just when you think you've seen it all, you see something new. Yeah. So, so this year we've seen new cybersecurity threats. So certainly, cybersecurity is is an area that's top of mind from the boardroom uh, down to the computer room and and the server room. And we see examiners have upped their game on what they're scrutinizing, and we've seen a lot of new threats. Uh, the one that you know comes to mind for 
2018 that uh, really came on strong the first part of the year is business email compromise. So, you know, the first half of the year we worked on about uh, six or seven of these incidents in different states where uh, a bank executive, uh, in most cases a CEO, would uh, have his or her email taken over. So a lot of these banks were using Outlook Web Access still. So mm-hmm. the CEO would get a spear phishing email, click on that email, give his or her email credentials, Outlook Web Access credentials to the bad guys, then they would at that point have that email and would start uh, looking at normal patterns for requesting wire transfers and in some cases would request wire transfers of the bank's controller and in some cases they were successful in sending uh, wire transfers, sometimes $100,000 or more, whether it be to Mexico or Eastern Europe. And in other cases, the uh, controller, thanks to good old-fashioned controls in banks, callback verification, out-of-band authentication, those would catch uh, catch those exploits and be able to uh, prevent a financial loss, although in some of those cases you did have uh, letters that had to be written to customers because mm. if you think about what's in your email box, think about your inbox, your sent items, your deleted items that really aren't deleted. In some cases those do contain PII, so personally identifiable information. In the case of a bank, if if the bad guys get in and see that information, let's say I sent you, you're my banker and I sent you my tax return unprotected mm-hmm. in your email, and then the bad guys got in and we suspected that the bad guys saw my tax return, well, by law, you as the bank have to write me a letter and let me know that that, that PII, my tax return, uh, could have been exposed uh, to an unauthorized party. So so a lot of these business email compromise incidents that we saw, uh, probably the number one cybersecurity incident for 2018 that we saw, they didn't always result in financial losses, but they almost always resulted in the the bank having to write that letter. And mm-hmm. so the way to mitigate that, you know, a lot of, we've identified the problem, so a lot of bankers might say, well, Jimmy, what do we do about it? Well, one thing, you know, I would question, why are you still using Outlook Web Access? Because maybe 10, 15 years ago, you'd be at the uh, hotel and you'd sign onto a public computer <laughs> to check your email. You'd go down to the hotel business center and you'd normally sign on to Outlook Web Access. Well, now most are getting that email through ActiveSync and Outlook and on your phone and on your uh, laptop. So a lot of banks we find don't need Outlook Web Access anymore so they can eliminate that risk or they can activate, if they do need it, they can activate multi-factor authentication and also uh, audit logging in Office 365, for example, and that mitigates the risk of a business email compromise uh, uh, greatly. So my long-lost uncle in, in Nigeria is up to his old tricks again. That's, <laughs> That's right. Don't don't fall don't fall for those. So yeah. So there's <laughs> there's a a lot of uh, incidents going on, and, and we did see one other one too that uh, about late July this became public, although it happened. Couple of years before, mm-hmm. and, and that was uh, a bank in Blacksburg, Virginia, got hit for a 2.4 million dollar loss. Mm. And and in this case, the the bad guys uh, got into the bank. The bank actually got hacked twice. The first time, they came in, and it was a pre- pretty big loss. It was a six figure loss, up uh, over 500 thousand. But the bank hired someone to do forensics, and you know the 
the normal the normal, uh, the, the normal uh, uh, place to place the blame is well the Russians did it. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry, but the Russians don't hack every. Uh, they're, they're not responsible for every hack. Okay, uh, so we don't know who did it, but uh, they came back for a second bite at the apple. And that one was uh, ended up being about 1.8 million. And in this case, this was new and, and this was disturbing because the bad guys got into uh, the debit card system. So they got they found out who had the credentials on the debit card administrative platform, took away the controls, the the maximum withdrawal amounts at an ATM, those types of controls. Also got into the core and were able to go in and, for example, Byron, they would, uh, you know, you'd have more money in your account, so they would debit your account, credit my account, because they had mm-hmm. the fake debit card on my account. Then they would, uh, over the course of a weekend, have hundreds of people deployed in cities all across uh, the globe, and mm-hmm. they would uh, withdraw the cash. You call that an ATM cash out. They would withdraw the cash, and um, so this bank got hit for $2.4 million. The reason all that's public is because the bank had, they're like, well, okay, we have insurance, right? So we have cybersecurity insurance. Well, actually what they found out, they had two, two different riders. One was a, a computer and electronic crime that had a single loss limit liability of $8 million. So mm. you think, okay, $2.4 million loss, $8 million, we're probably in pretty good shape. But they also had a debit card rider that, and, and that single loss limit liability was $50,000. So in this case, the insurance company said, no, the computer electronic crime doesn't apply. This was a debit card incident. So your $2.4 million loss, um, we're only going to pay you 50000 So now the bank is suing the insurance company. Right. And that's why some of this is becoming public. But I think there are valuable lessons to be learned for the bankers that might be listening to this today, and my biggest question to banks is, do you have 24-7 coverage of your network security? So if you had an intruder on the network right now, how would you know that? And if your answer is, my IT guy's watching that, that's the wrong answer in my opinion, because it's humanly impossible to monitor your network 24-7. So a lot of banks have, you know, the employees wouldn't think of having a home unprotected on vacation without having ADT watching their home on a 24-7 basis. But we still see a lot of bank networks that are unprotected and unmonitored. And uh, so to spend two or th- you know, one or 2000 a month to have that type of 24-7 coverage uh, is something that we think is vitally important uh, to mitigating that type of cybersecurity risk. Absolutely. Uh, Jimmy, your second prediction was, quote, cryptocurrency mania gives way to sobering reality. Now, I can only hope that this has become a reality. Are you getting the same cryptocurrency questions you got this time last year? And what's the takeaway for community banks with this whole crypto thing? Well, I think we have to first separate uh, cryptocurrency versus the blockchain. You know, there's great hope for uh, the blockchain, you know, that technology underlying cryptocurrency. But as far as cryptocurrency, you know, I would argue that it's, it doesn't even meet the definition of currency. It's an asset class, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not stable enough to meet the definition of currency. And despite the fact that some people think it's hack-proof, we've seen a lot of these cryptocurrency exchanges hacked, right? Mm-hmm. And people lose, lose their uh, uh, digital currency. So uh, too much instability right now. We've certainly seen wild fluctuations in the pricing. We've seen uh, people that 
are really engaged in these pump and dumps where they'll they'll pump it up on social media then mm-hmm. when the price goes up they'll dump their holdings so it's still the wild west out there um we're seeing the the CFPB, you know, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Mm-hmm. They're getting some complaints about delayed funds transfers and settlements at cryptocurrency exchanges. So uh, we think that this is going to be an area of instability for a while. And I guess I have a a little more negative view of cryptocurrency in general. I mean, you can look at um, failed fintechs like BitInstant, for mm-hmm. example. You know, Google that, and you'll see. Um, what happened there with the founder who I believe is still in jail and uh, certainly there's some Bank Secrecy Act issues involved here because a lot of the people engaged in cryptocurrency are trying to hide their activity right so right. it might be anything from terrorist financing to drug dealing so uh, cryptocurrency in itself I think uh, the other thing I tell bankers is you know a lot of the people that really are behind a lot of the cryptocurrency they don't want any central bank they don't want government authority they actually want community bankers dead for the most part they right. don't want the banking system to exist as we know it so i think in that sense it's a threat we should be aware of but and on the other side i think there's a lot to be learned from the the technology and certainly certainly the blockchain that yeah. may be a conversation for another day but uh yeah cri- cryptocurrency I always say, too, like I said in my top uh, 10 this past year, I think you can tell a lot about a group of people by who their heroes are. And, mm-hmm. and these guys, if you go to a cryptocurrency conference, you know, you'll see them uh, selling postcards of Edward Snowden and people like that. So I, um, okay. it's, a little, it's a little different uh, group than, than the, community, the community bankers that you and I know. So right. I think we're going to con- continue to see instability in cryptocurrency uh, in 2019 and beyond. Uh, your third prediction, you said bankers learn to serve the mobile-only customer. You brought up the move away from the traditional, quote, internet banking platforms, and you note that tech providers have not yet supported the, quote, flight to mobile trend. Is this an issue of the banks, or is it the issue of the providers today? And how do we look in November of 2018 in this area? It's really a little bit of both. I think mm-hmm. we're seeing... Um, some of the we're seeing really kind of mobile banking 2.0 and, uh-huh. and a lot of community banks especially where they have been dependent on providers some of those core providers and you know the first uh, mobile banking uh, systems and, and services that came out of the gate were, were pretty pretty bad they were pretty uh-huh. lackluster and now we're seeing them take more advantage of the features of today's smartphones with facial recognition and obviously even just uh, fingerprint recognition with touch ID but uh, we're also seeing a 30 we've seen a 35 percent reduction over the past five years in visits to the branches now that doesn't necessarily mean the branch is dead but we certainly see more people using the mobile channel so I think if the if the providers can support the banks in providing that mobile experience to their customers in that new delivery channel and then the banks can then really rework some of their business processes. I always say if if I have to come into the bank to sign up for mobile banking or any digital services, we've got a failure to launch right there. So I think it's going to be a combination of banks providers providing a, a good mobile banking service, but also the banks changing their business processes where they will allow their customers to sign up for those services online and then also make sure those services you know work as as designed so one of the things we found out over the years is just because a new channel comes on whether it's been ATMs or internet banking or in this case mobile banking 
the customer doesn't touch the bank less, they actually touch the bank more. So the channels are all complementary really with an E, you know, it, they don't really supplant each other. So I think we're going to continue to see that with mobile. But I think we'll also see more banks uh, roll out, you know, mobile only accounts because a lot of the fintechs are moving in that direction too. I recently signed up with uh, Vero Money was one uh, one of the fintechs and I, I just wanted to see what that customer experience was like and I can tell you that there was nothing I went through in that customer experience that a community bank couldn't do better with the right technology and the right business processes so that's why I tell community bankers uh, there's really nothing you can't do if we just kind of get out of our own way review those business processes uh, choose the right providers you can do everything that the fintechs can do. That's really uh, that's really good point, Jimmy, and I, I'm glad you said it that way. That sometimes it's it's easier to blame the providers rather than just trying to figure out, you know putting your toe into the water and putting your, to your foot into the pool and just trying and seeing is there a way to do it. I'm, I'm glad you said it that way. Um, number four, you said P2P takes off, but bankers continue to lag. You brought up some interesting challenges some of the P2P providers had to overcome with banks. Have they overcome them, and how can a community bank get into the P2P world? Well, and a lot of community banks are into that P2P world already, mm -hmm. and, and, as, and as bankers, we sometimes do a, a bad job of, of marketing and branding. So P2P, which the average person probably doesn't know what that means, we're talking about person-to-person -person payments. So uh, your, your college-age children know that more as Venmo, right? Mm -hmm. And so Venmo and Square Cash and Apple Pay Cash, you know, Facebook Messenger even mm -hmm. has a P2P feature. So... Just being able to pay someone by uh, get if I Byron if I got, had your mobile phone number or mm -hmm. your email then we would be able to exchange funds. Now, to me the the winning combination here for community banks and a lot of them have this already. We're kind of keeping it under a bushel, and that is run that person-to-person -person payment service over your debit card rails. You've got that in place already, and that's quicker. And it also is, is something that's already in place. So uh, what I suggest to our community bank clients is you have a fast and faster P2P strategy. So uh, fast, mm -hmm. we can run this over the ACH rails. So if you want it in two days, then we can do that and that transaction would be free. Now, if you want it a little quicker, then let's do it debit card to debit card. And in that case, maybe, maybe you get charged a convenience fee for that mm -hmm. quicker uh, payment. Now, what's going on right now, there's a lot of talk about a uh, P2P solution that the big banks put together called Zelle. So you're hearing a lot of talk about that and a lot of the core providers are getting on board and a lot of community bankers, are, that's being pitched to them. And I, I think that Zelle is going to have a tough road to hoe for quite a few reasons. Uh, one, I think their branding has been an issue. If you go to Zelle.com, you go to a law firm. You don't mm -hmm. go to you don't go to Zelle, the the payment solution. And and that that group um, Zelle started as Clear Exchange by a company called Early Warning Services LLC. So it was a consortium of uh, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, U.S. Bank, and others some of the larger banks to develop this person-to-person -person payments network. So it started out as Clear Exchange, it's now called Zelle, Z-E-L-L-E, -L -L -E, that's short for Gazelle. And and it's touting to have about 130 banks participating. But Byron, I'll tell you that if you go to the website, 
and you click on all 130 of those banks, like I had one of my interns do, just because <laughs> we're weird that way, um, I wanted to know who was really participating mm -hmm. and who wasn't. Well, we only saw about 30 of those banks that were truly signed up. Mm. And there's even a local bank out who shall remain nameless here in uh, Memphis. And uh, if you click on their link, it says coming soon. Well, I can tell you as a customer of that bank, they've been coming soon for two years. So mm -hmm. Zelle's having some trouble getting traction. And I think a lot of that's going to continue because a lot of community banks especially, and even a lot of regional banks, are a bit reticent to have Wells Fargo or someone like that mining their customer transaction behavior and data. Mm. And the, the one of the founders of Zelle stepped down recently. Um, and finally, what I would say on my, my very negative review of Zelle here uh, is that these days, especially in the area of mobile and payments, it doesn't matter what you think, what kind of uh, spin is being put out in the trade publications, your consumer will tell you exactly what they think about that app. Right. And last time I checked, when I went to the Zelle app in the Google Play Store, it had a rating of 2.4. Now we're talking uh, 2.4 on a scale of one to five, five being best, okay? So if you look at, at Venmo, I think it's about a 4.7. Square Cash, which is one I use, is probably about a 4.0. Mm -hmm. But in my opinion, if you're below a four, you've got a, a an app that's really not doing very well. If you're below a three like Zelle is right now on their ratings, and go read some of those reviews, you'll you'll learn some new language. Uh, in, in those reviews, a two, if you're a 2.4, if you're below three, then your app just plain stinks. Yeah. And, 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 the, and the users are saying that. That's not me saying it, mm -hmm. that, is, that is the public saying that. So that's why I think um, community banks especially should really pump the brakes before they sign up with, with Zelle or any person-to-person -person payment solution that's not using ACH or the debit rails and is not going to be, in my opinion, favorable to community banks. Good point. Um, number five, you said banks get branded. I think this was a really fascinating point. And I really don't know how to quantify this question, but just your opinion. How have we done and have community bank how has community banking done in terms of digital branding this past year? I think we're doing better. We're mm -hmm. we're learning to use more channels. Um, when we've been afraid sometimes to use email as a channel uh, and so I think email and direct mail think about the direct mail you get I know as a small business owner we get so much direct mail from online lenders really mm -hmm. even so cabbage and on deck and lending club and and all of these different ones Marcus of course by Goldman Sachs mm -hmm. and so I think that banks need to step back and look and develop a digital marketing plan it may involve even some uh, you know, some analog marketing like direct mail, but certainly look at broadcast email. Be collecting the email address and the cell phone number of your customers uh, in the account opening process so you can reach your customers on the channel of their choice. And then take a look at their websites too. Uh, you know, not many people visit your website. Uh, in, in these cases, they visit the website really to check credibility, maybe get certain information, your routing transit number, your phone number, your locations. But I think we can do a better job on making sure those websites render properly on a smartphone. So mobile optimized websites, we're seeing more responsive design because remember most people are going to be coming through Google and looking at you uh, on that mobile phone. So make sure that's a good experience. 
and really, uh, again, coming up with a digital marketing plan to where the digital and physical worlds are really working together and really to gain that brand recognition. You know, especially as community banks, a lot of us have similar names. So just even stepping back and looking at your logo, is your logo a little old and tired? Maybe it needs a revamping. And and putting all that into a branding strategy, I think uh, will serve, serve bankers well. So we're seeing some banks that are doing a really good job with that. And then we see some that are a bit stagnant. So I think that's going to continue to be a good project for community bankers, especially in, in 2019. Hmm. Uh, number six, you said, was archaic bank processes get re-engineered. Um, have you seen a re-engineering of, quote, traditional bank processes? And for uh, as a former teller myself, have we automated the count on the third of the month to make <laughs> everyone's life easier? <laughs> well... Uh, I, I don't know if we've automated uh, quite quite everything there, but I, I can tell you from uh, doing a lot of, I'm in a lot of different banks doing strategic technology plans and technology assessments and, you know, all, all over the U.S. And it's still amazing to me sometimes, you know, I always say we have, we have three things that have to work together to have success and to have the desired results. And that's where you got to have the people, the processes, and the technology. So I go into a lot of community banks where they have great people, they've bought the latest technology, but they're still using an old business process. And one example, even with branch capture, you know, scanning the checks uh, in the branch instead of doing the old bag and drag like we <laughs> used to do, then we still see some banks that still have inexplicably a 2 p.m. or a 3 p.m. deposit cutoff time. And then you'll find out, I'll ask the question, well, why, you know, I, I ask a lot of uh, why questions. So what used to get me in trouble in <laughs> elementary school and throughout school, now I make a living Living doing it, right? right. So, <laughs> so now I say, why are you still doing that? And a lot of times I'll be, well, you know, everybody wants to get home earlier, whatever the case is. So I think we've got to put the customer first and say, you know, someone might be coming by, you know, after uh, normal banking hours even, but certainly closer to five o'clock. So there's really no excuse for all banks not to have same day banking now mm -hmm. with the advent of branch capture and teller capture. So I see that business process needs to be re-engineered. And then really looking too at, uh, I don't think any customers should have to wait seven to 10 days for a debit card. I think we need to be doing more instant issue debit cards in banks. I think we also need to take a look if you're making your retail internet banking customers change their passwords every 90 days, I would question why are you doing that? Because guess who's not doing that? Wells Fargo, Bank of America. So I see a lot of uh, sometimes, you know, frankly, uninformed uh, IT auditors or examiners put really a burden like that on a bank, say, okay, yeah, you need to have those people mm -hmm. change those passwords. When really there's no basis in, in regulation, best practice, or even uh, a good risk management practice, and they put community banks at a disadvantage when competing against their larger bank brethren. And I, I don't like to see that. I want to see community banks do well. So there are a lot of different uh, business processes that still need to be re-engineered in banks, but uh, certainly those those are a few that we see in our travels. Yeah. Uh, number seven was fintechs deliver or destruct. I think my dad would have called that Fisher cut bait. Uh, one of the things that stood out to me this year was at the Lead Forward Conference for my CBA, where I saw some really interesting statistics that banks view fintechs either as friends or competitors equally. I mean, it was very 
obvious. There's either a very much love or very much hate there. Uh, we really don't know what to make of them as an industry. Are you seeing a paring down of that market and some synergy being achieved there? Uh, we are because some of it just the the free market works right, and eventually if someone burns through enough cash, then <laughs> they do have to fish or cut back, right. right? So they have to produce something. So we're seeing uh, a lot of these guys have to put up or shut up on on what they're doing. And and let's you know step back here for a minute. I mean, we talk about fintechs. Who who it, what is a fintech? Who is a fintech? Okay, mm-hmm. well. Jack Henry is a fintech. Fiserv is a fintech. Uh, FIS is a fintech. So you've got your traditional fintechs that are profitable, stable, have a lot of customers. And then you've got some startups, obviously, uh, that wish they had you know, mm-hmm. profitability, that wish they had customers. And certainly we're seeing more of those um, tone it down a little bit. You know, before they were you know, okay, community banks especially. Community banks they thought were blockbuster and they were Netflix. Well I think some of them have toned that down now and said, Well, maybe we should maybe we should partner together. Maybe we shouldn't be uh, you know, criticizing the community bank model so so much. So a lot of those have toned it down. They're looking to partner with banks or in many cases be acquired by banks or be acquired by the FISERVs, Jack Henry's mm-hmm. and the FISs in the world, those that have the capital really to uh, take them where they need to be. And, and I'm a big believer in the free market. And guess what? Some of these, they will die because they should, mm-hmm. uh, because there is no market for them. So. Mm-hmm. You know, I would argue that things like personal financial management applications, that the average consumer is not real excited about those. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, some others and we'll talk about here in a second, like voice banking, I am excited about. So I think, again, it doesn't matter what we think, the market will tell you uh, what, is, what is in demand. And, and I think it's up to us as, as, as bankers and consultants to have our ear to the ground, do what our customers want. Uh, you know, I like the old saying uh, by Henry Ford, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses, right? <laughs> well, uh, certainly a lot of times we have to educate the public on, on what's better than a horse. And a lot of these fintechs are coming up with that. But uh, I'll tell you one thing, too. A lot of the fintechs that claim to be so innovative, there's still a core behind the curtain doing the heavy lifting. Mm. There's still a traditional legacy system doing that heavy lifting. So some have fancier front ends and YouTube videos than substance, <laughs> but we're also seeing some that are uh, providing some disruption. And I think that banks are going to learn from them, but I, I'll say it again. There is nothing that a FinTech is doing today that a community bank can't do with the right people, processes, and technology in place. So uh, I want I want to emphasize that and I want community bankers to be heartened by that fact that you are not blockbuster. You are not going to get disrupted out of business if you pay attention to your strategic technology planning and make sure you have the right people, processes, and technology in place. Yeah, good. Um, number eight was vendor management gets smart. How has the process of vendor management progressed in 2018? Well, we're seeing banks um, take a stronger look at you know, doing better due diligence and kind of back to the fintechs. Mm-hmm. I mean, just really standard due diligence still applies. Okay, check, right. check the people out. Know who you're doing business with. What's the reputation of that company? What's the reputation of the principles of that company? And I've been a little surprised. Uh, back to automation. You know, some bankers think, well, if I go buy a vendor management system then that really takes care of my vendor management program. And no, a lot of times that's just an empty bucket to put in, uh, scan your contracts and, and, and follow 
when those contracts are going to be renewing. So if I'm a banker, I don't want to pay a vendor management system or vendor to tell me if Microsoft is financially stable, okay? <laughs> I think they're going to make it into 2019. But again, I, I see some banks and they are paying people to look at the financials of some of these providers. And my question to a banker is always, okay, uh, what are you going to do about it? So let's say you see something negative with your core processor. You're in the middle of a five-year contract, maybe longer. If you haven't negotiated in that contract, certain escape clauses and you're you're not going anywhere so it's you know why do we do any risk assessment the the one word i always use is awareness so i think vendor management systems are going to help bankers be more aware but i also think a lot of bankers are burning a lot of calories in the vendor management area where there could be a smarter application of vendor management and looking at reputation doing a risk assessment to determine who are the uh, important vendors. I was in a bank, a new client that we got called into this summer, Byron, and uh, some consultant had this bank uh, doing a vendor management risk assessment on the town sewer system. And, and I, you know, I couldn't believe it. So again, we, we are misplacing a lot of energy and money as yeah. bankers looking at all the wrong things. So I think most community <laughs> banks can take vendor management into their own hands. They don't need an automated system and there are ways to measure uh, your a vendor's reputation. Do the proper due diligence on the front end. Mm -hmm. That's the most important thing. Don't go to a conference where someone does a seven-minute presentation and you fall in love and propose marriage. I mean, that's just that's never wise. So uh, <laughs> in any environment, <laughs> right? So I, I could I could talk a long time about vendor management, but I'll I'll leave it at that. That okay. just. Banks need to really take a look at those automated systems to see if they're really getting the right ROI or if they're just complicating vendor management and creating uh, automation and systems where none need to exist. Mm. Number nine, you said bankers invest in talent. Job creation has certainly been a macroeconomic issue this year. Um, have banks, in your opinion, begun the, processing of a, the process of investing in talent and building that farm system, as you called it? Right. Well, I, as, as someone who is uh, a living example of a bank mm -hmm. taking a chance, a community bank taking a chance on a knuckleheaded kid, you know, when I was 19 years old, I, you know, got hired by a community bank and it, it really changed my life. I mean, my, my father uh, had been a, a child of the Depression and his parents had abandoned him during the Great Depression mm -hmm. and he only had an eighth grade education, was a great father, but mm -hmm. I saw him struggle in that area. And uh, I was lucky enough to get hired by a community bank that, that paid for my education and, and gave me a lot of mentoring and leadership uh, in the business world. And, and really, they're responsible for you know me being able to own my own firm today and go out and mm -hmm. work with so many great community bankers. So I, I know firsthand the difference that community banks make, not only in the lives of their customers, but certainly in the lives of their employees, like they did for me. And I'm very grateful for that, and that's why I have a passion for community banking and seeing community banks do well. And yeah, I have a real concern right now, especially in the area of IT and operations, that, that banks are, are outsourcing so much that they are not developing that next generation of talent. So when we talk about fintechs and how can they compete, well, if you're not growing that talent, yeah, I use, I'm a big baseball fan, so mm -hmm. I use the analogy of a baseball team having a farm team. So you take uh, 
my favorite team, the St. Louis Cardinals, and they've got the AAA affiliate here in Memphis, the Memphis Redbirds. Well, we've seen a lot of good talent come up from Memphis and go to St. Louis. So do community banks have that equivalent? Are they developing their people to be the leaders of tomorrow? And I see a couple of disturbing trends And again, people can have different opinions on this. I always say to disagree is American, and if someone disagrees with me on this, that's fine. But I see uh, two things happening in community banks where banks are signing on, like for these virtual CIO services. Mm -hmm. And and I think these virtual CIO services are the... really the, the Nutrasweets and the egg beaters of the uh, banking consulting world. I, it's just not the real thing, okay? I have some cruder examples I use sometimes, uh, not in mixed company, but, but uh, certainly a bank is outsourcing something to a virtual CIO that, I'm sorry, is not wearing that bank's jersey, is mm. not in that community every day, is not going to church with these customers and coaching their kids in T-ball. Mm-hmm. That is not the same thing. It's not the real thing. And then that bank's going to wake up one day and not have the leadership in that very important area. And, yeah, they're going to have cybersecurity troubles. And they're going to have troubles competing maybe with fintechs or banks that have progressed because they've really outsourced that talent and haven't developed their own. Um, The virtual ISO is another uh, phenomenon we're seeing in consulting where I just can't understand uh, th- that's not even a full-time job in a bank. It can easily be done by someone in the bank that just cares about the bank, wants to make sure that they keep their information secure. Mm-hmm. But we're seeing banks outsource that. So a lot of bankers are getting sold on outsourcing some of these jobs. And I'd much rather see a community banker uh, employing people in their community. I think that is a great thing. Now, I'm not saying that you don't always outsource. Outsourcing versus in-house is something you should do your due diligence on. It's not just an all or none uh, proposition. But as someone, again, whose life was changed by a community bank, I want to see community bankers taking uh, people in their bank, in their community, and developing that talent to really lead that bank uh, in, into this new era of digital services and also to be able to protect the bank against cybersecurity threats. And, and bankers can do that, but not if they continue to outsource some of those important responsibilities. Uh, Jimmy, I love that. I love that story. And um, yeah, outsourcing, I can see, we, we talked earlier about the the, the need to um, have a better, stronger, really, I would argue, which based on what you were saying, a more functional due diligence. And it's hard to outsource you know the banker knows the customer better rather than the outsource right company and if you know it, it becomes a marketing issue or and, and a strategic growth issue as well if you know if you're not able to if you're investing money and outsourcing into a into a virtual service like that they don't understand how your customers in that community at that church and that ball team how they're going to react how they need their access to their money um, that's a Absolutely. great point great point your last point, we'll use this to wrap up the interview. Your last prediction for 2018 was the progression of AI. And lately, I've seen a great deal of discussion about the inclusion of voice banking. I think you mentioned it earlier as well. So tell us a little bit about that and how is that progressing for the community banking world? Well, this is, I'm most excited about this type of mm-hmm. app, uh, voice banking. And of course, Voice banking uses a, a part of artificial intelligence called natural language processing, or NLP. And so those who have been in my class here at uh, 
the Barrett School of Banking over the past probably four years, I've been bringing in my electronic girlfriend, Alexa, so my <laughs> Amazon Echo, and uh, I do have an electronic girlfriend. I'm not uh, ashamed to say that, but she does a great job. And I've always been telling them, hey, you know, I'm not just bringing this uh, this smart speaker in here, you know, this Amazon Echo device, this could be the future of banking. You think about voice banking, being able to come home and say, Alexa, tell me my bank balance. Alexa, you know, transfer funds for me. Tell me the latest mortgage rates. And so now we're seeing that become a reality and not just on the Amazon Echo platform or the Google Home platform, although we do continue to see those uh, sell uh, like hotcakes, so they're really moving along. But we've also seen uh, this move to the car and the home, right? So mm-hmm. dr- more voice recognition in the car. Uh, certainly, we see it. You know, I have. I don't know about you, but I have. Uh, I have an Amazon Echo in my kitchen. I've got, uh, you know, an Amazon Echo Show that in, in incorporates the video. That I've got one of those in the bedroom. I've got a dot, you know, in the bathroom, and I've got them all. So I, I'm sold on on that platform. Well, one of the things we've seen recently, uh, Bank of America came out with their voice banking platform mm-hmm. they call Erica. Yeah. And so kind of play on the Bank of America, Erica. So instead of Alexa, theirs is called Erica. And, and Erica works right through their mobile banking app. So mm. you can speak right into your phone and talk to Erica and ask her questions in your natural language. You don't have to speak like a robot. You, you can just ask her a question like you and I are talking right now and she will answer. So we're seeing that combined too with the analysis of a lot of this big data. So if I asked my Bank of America app, Erica, when is the last time I you know, had a transaction at Chick-fil-A, then she would actually be able to go in and search on Chick-fil-A, look at my debit card activity, my transaction activity, and come back and say, well, you know, Jimmy, on November 5th, 2018 at 2 p.m., you were at Chick-fil-A and you spent, you know, $10.51. So that's the granularity that we're getting to. So combining big data, looking at transaction behavior, natural language processing, and then coming through the devices that we're getting comfortable with, our Amazon Echoes, our Google Homes, our smartphones, our cars, then we're going to see digital banking really taken to the next level. And so that's what I've been trying to prepare my classes for all these years. And this will be my 20th year on the faculty here at the Barrett School of Banking. I'm, I'm fortunate I get to teach at uh, four other banking schools around the nation, and my longest tenure is certainly here. And I'm, I'm glad that we're having those discussions so these students can make this part of their bank strategic plans and be prepared for that uh, new wave of artificial intelligence that's coming because we're just scratching the surface right now. And it's, it's very exciting. And again, it's going to allow community banks to compete on a level playing field with the larger banks. So uh, as community bankers, we've always embraced technology Mm -hmm. from check imaging to ATMs. We've always adapted and community banks will continue to adapt and continue to compete. So I'm very high on community banks, again, with the right people, processes and technology, being able to compete against any bank, credit union, anyone else, uh, if they just embrace the right technologies. Well, I'm really glad you, you, you ended the interview part of that with, with that statement, Jimmy. It's, you know, we hear a lot of times, I can't, we can't compete, we can't compete, we can't compete. Um, and I, I really appreciate you saying that because there is, you know, a, a 
it's like anything else changes the only thing that's going to that we know for certain is that the change will happen and so how we adapt to that change leads to our survive our survival on that thank you for, for bringing that up and jimmy you've got uh the bank tech summit coming up here we're recording this on november the 8th you've got a bank tech summit coming up next week tell us a little bit about that we do. This will be our 12th year. You know, we want to give back to an industry that's been good to us. And so for 12 years now, you know, we've, we've partnered with uh, the Barrett Graduate School of Bank, and you guys have been our CPE sponsor. But we put on this, uh, this invitation-only exclusive event for our clients and friends. And, you know, we're so fortunate. We have so many friends in the industry that are nationally known speakers and providers. So we have all of those uh, folks in to the Peabody Memphis and their and this year's event's going to be running November 13th through 15th there at the, the South Grand Hotel, the, the Peabody Hotel. And we will be talking about a lot of these topics. We'll be talking about fintechs. We'll be talking to my friend, Dr. Ed Seafried's coming in, noted economist, gonna talk about Trump tax cuts and what it means to you in 2019. So we have a lot of uh, discussion on data analysis, serving the digital customer, uh, tech infrastructure, a lot of different topics. So you can go to sawyersjacobs.com to check that out. And if you uh, register by midnight uh, tomorrow night, that's Friday, November 9th, then we'll, we'll still extend the early registration on that. But we, we've had this 12 years in a row now, and it's a great way for bankers to come together, network, exchange knowledge, and, and learn more about these topics we're talking about in an independent, non-salesy setting. Again, we don't resell anyone's services, so our advice is independent and objective. So we all get together and have a great, great time and certainly appreciate, uh, again, Barrett being the CPE sponsor once again for Absolutely. that. But you'll see the, the major tech providers exhibit there, and it's a very uh, collegial, uh, comfortable environment. And we're, we're always glad to put on this event uh, for the banks in the area and uh, would love to see uh, a lot of the bankers come on out there. You could even come to the door on um, the 13th, and, and we'll certainly find a seat for you. So November 13th through 15th, Bank Tech Summit, our 12th year. Good deal. Jimmy, I appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Appreciate stopping by. Thanks for having me, Byron, and uh, look, look forward to seeing you folks at Bank Tech Summit and appreciate the great job that the Barrett Graduate School of Banking does for our industry. Uh, thank you. We'll see you next week. Well, that's our episode for today. We hope you've enjoyed yourself and learned a little something. If you haven't already, please feel free to subscribe to our podcast and drop us a five-star rating. You can follow us at Barrett Banking on Twitter or Barrett School of Banking on Facebook and LinkedIn. And we even have a new Community Banking Road Trip playlist on Spotify highlighting your favorite songs about your home state. Check that out and feel free to submit your favorite song about your state to add to the playlist. We have an ever-growing slate of classes, seminars, and webinars that are available, and not to mention our industry-recognized Graduate School of Banking every May. And we look forward to seeing you at any or all of our events. For more information, check out our website at barrett.ws. And from Memphis, the heart of banking, blues, and barbecue, we'll see y'all next time on Main Street Banking.